Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Steve Moore. Steve is the founder and managing director of Skipper's Pet Products, a pioneering pet treat company based in Grimsby, Lincolnshire. Steve, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Very kind of you to invite me, Scott. Thank you very much and it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks ever so much um, for taking the time to come on and speak with me. Now, um, Steve, the purpose of this podcast, as I say there, is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Well, um, with Skippers, I, mean, I have a team um, that I like to encourage. I feel like as, as a leader, I should be um, directing people uh, and allowing them to free think uh, to actually encourage the business to move forward. Um, I like to make sure they've got good direction, that um, we, we focus, we keep to the morals of the company, which is to make sure everything's um, natural um, and healthy. And I think I just like to be able to, to think that um, I can lead them all in the right direction. I think you raise a really interesting point there that you do allow people to essentially have a little bit of freedom to sort of take on their own leadership and move in their own way there because leadership in business especially shouldn't necessarily be about constantly being over one shoulder, does it, and really just focusing on what they're doing. I think giving them a little bit of space to sort of venture beyond their comfort zone, as it were, that can actually be really beneficial in one's development, can't it? Absolutely. And and, and sometimes when you, you can get staff members uh, and if you nurture them, and what happens is you, it's necessarily the skill sets that you thought they had when they first came to the business, they sometimes have far better strength um, that, that, that come out as, as time goes by. And, and if you encourage the free thought and you encourage ideas within all your staff members, it's amazing how they, the team building happens. They all pull together. And this is this is what I've definitely found that they, they find their own ideas that they, they pass things around between themselves, and I actually get a lot more um, work rate out of them because they've become more excited with the job. They've got something that actually endears them. Actually, they take to the heart, um, and they feel that they're part of the business, and they it it does drive them forward without doubt. You know, we're seeing mm. very very big growth in the company in the last four months. We increased sales by 28 percent um obviously with the covid uh, problem just it's slightly changed in the last couple of months but it's the, it's the encouragement of the staff and in, in upholding their keep keeping them all together and then um, putting suggestions about it's definitely definitely changed our business I think it's really interesting that you do mention the uh, current COVID situation there, Steve, because we're hearing a lot of stories from businesses who have either had to adapt to remote working or have just kept going in on site of um, employees have continued to work without complaint. They've just plugged away and got on with it and really mucked in for the greater good of the uh, the business. And it's often said as well that you learn a lot more about your own team when the chips are down as well and when you're facing times of adversity. And I can imagine it's probably been the same as well. I mean, I think um, during this time, everyone's had to really um, go in all hands to the pump, as it were. And I can imagine that you found out an awful lot about your team and learnt a lot during this time also. 
<laughs> I've learned a lot about myself and the team. And the, the team have been able to work, you know, through through the internet very, very well. Um, and I think probably sometimes working from home when you haven't got the hustle and bustle of all the phone calls and and um, just the, the daily problems of being in the office surroundings with the factory that's all around us. There's all, all things going wrong. And it, it's allowed my staff that, that time to free think. And the ideas that have come out and the changes uh, are fantastic. I, I've actually got the feel-good factor, even though we're going through the COVID. Um, I, I do think my, some of my staff are actually like to be at work. I think they've realised that you know just working from home is not always simple, but it has given them that free time. And uh, I, I, I can't be more happy with the way my team have pulled together through this. I really can't. And of course, it's important in the workplace as well to kind of maintain that close knit feel. And we're finding that that's um, obviously some, one of those really important things to maintain at the moment, isn't it? Because there's a much more renewed focus on mental health at the moment and people's individual head spaces. And as leaders, I mean, I think, and as people, we tend to take that human contact for granted, or at least we certainly did do before the uh, the COVID situation emerged. And would you say it's maybe been a challenge trying to kind of maintain that close-knit feel and that contact with your employees, or has it actually been quite an easy transition? Uh, one thing for sure, as a leader, I think you need to be able to show empathy and understanding uh, and compassion towards your staff's needs and the, the problems that they you know, it changes their life around just as it does your own. Mm. Um, and you have to show your, your um, staff that they're not just a, a number on a payroll. You know, they're your friends. And I, I, I call them my friends because it's a, it's a tight-knit team of people. And I think, you know, you have to let your staff know that you're human and that you you want to help them get through their problems. Uh, and, and that's what I do. I'd like to think I do that anyway. They, they know I'm always there. I'm at the end of the, at the minute, I'm at the end of the phone if they need me. You make a very, very interesting point there about the fact that as a leader, you are human. I think maybe in certain levels of corporate leadership, where leadership can be seen as a little bit cutthroat, that can sometimes be uh, forgotten in a sense, because we are all human. We are all fallible. And there's a lot of pressure on leaders, especially at the moment amid a great deal of uncertainty, such as this current COVID situation. There's a great pressure on leaders to have all of the answers all of the time, to just offer that little bit of reassurance. And it really makes us self-aware doesn't it that pressure and we have to sort of maintain a cool head maintain level-headedness but also show some humility and show some empathy and really relate to those around us um those are all hugely important qualities especially at this time absolutely and what it what it's done is i mean i I have weaknesses i have vulnerabilities i make mistakes i try to learn from them which is the most important thing and my staff do as well but together we're a team and together we're moving this business forward very quickly. Um, and it, and it, as I say, it's become it's very exciting. And I just want them to, I want my staff to know that I'm there for them. Uh, I think they all know that anyway. You know, during this COVID, one of one of my staff members has lost, you know, a close member of staff. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, lost his sorry his mother. Mm. And um, you know, I've been there for him as much as I possibly can. Uh, to try to support him, you know, financially as best I can and just to be there as a friend. And um, 
and nobody appreciates that. But I would be like that with all all my staff because you know they're my friends. This business would not be where it is without my staff. I've got the best staff in the world. I think it's a hugely important point that, and of course, sincerest condolences uh, to your uh, colleague there. Um, it's it's important that as a leader we sh- do show that um, you know we care about those around us because. As a leader, without a team of people around you, you're not necessarily leading anything for one part, I would say, personally. Um, but also it's important to be able to take people with you, and you're far more likely to do that if you demonstrate that you do care about those people. It's integral, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, honesty is a is a massive thing with your staff. You know, if we, if we were having bad times, we're having good times, I like my staff to know where they are, where we are as a business, um, you know, the integrity of the company, the morals of the company and the morals of my staff. The reason I got my staff that I have now because their morals are in thinking with me. You know, we're, we're, we're a pet treat company, pet food, and all my staff have dogs and they're all dog crazy, they're all animal crazy. And mm-hmm. and we, we have our integrity within the company to make sure that everything ticks all the boxes. Everything has to be natural and uh, and healthy and it's the same with the perspective of my staff I want them to be the same you know they've got to they've got to look after themselves and if they don't feel well I don't want them coming into work I want them to get well and uh, be positive you know positivity is another huge thing within within your, your workforce you keep them all positive you get much more out of them uh, and they enjoy the surroundings as well and I think it's so. That's another a, a big point of the positivity throughout your staff. Keep them motivated. It's a huge part of company culture, that isn't it? The sort of um, instilling that positivity on uh, people. And uh, another thing as well is um, that you mentioned um, in your own personal experience, Steve, that you have, of course, learned from making mistakes throughout your career. And sometimes I think under certain leadership regimes within business especially there can be almost a fear of making errors due to a fear of criticism and the uh, the consequences that may come of that whereas i think we should be encouraging people to try new things to maybe make one or two errors suffer setbacks and then be willing to embrace that and learn from them because making mistakes like that learning from mistakes albeit you don't want to be doing it all the time but it is a very key part of one's development, especially in terms of becoming a good leader as well. Yeah, I agree. You know, as you say, everybody makes mistakes. I make plenty of my own, so I don't, I don't, I don't get upset with my staff if they make a mistake. I just hope that they will learn from the mistake. Um, you know, I, I, as I say to you, I encourage my staff to talk things through before making a decision, a big decision, because I, I will allow them to make decisions sometimes. I can't make all the decisions for them. So I like them to think it through as clearly as they can, seek advice from another member of staff if they can, to make a decision between themselves. But, you know, encouraging that, it, it, the, the biggest thing in here is that if I, make, if I was to make all the major decisions, then it's one brain. But if I use my management team, of five people, I've got five brains there to think it through. So I've got a much better chance of getting the right choice. And I have to listen to what they, sometimes I don't like what they say. Um, it can be, it, it can be detrimental to, to maybe what I was thinking, but if, but if they've got valid cases, if they can demonstrate the reasoning behind it, 
I will change my opinion, and I do it regular. I often have a red face sometimes when we've when we've thought through something because I've actually been beaten into submission with something, but they've got genuine reasons for it. And I think, hopefully, I like to think that they they realise that I can actually accept I got it wrong. I think that's also a massive thing for those listening to consider um, within leadership positions as well that surrounding yourself with positive people is one of the best things that you could possibly do. I think it was um, Nelson Mandela who once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you are. And you're right in saying that five brains are indeed better than one. And that's a perfect example of that. And surrounding yourself with positive people who can get the best out of you, but also vice versa as well. You can nurture the best out of them. That is one of the most important things that you can do. It's almost like picking your mentors in a way, isn't it? I suppose. Absolutely. And um, my staff are self-educating. You know, they're going on, they're going on learning courses, podcasts at their own cost, at their own time, because they want to learn more about what they're doing because they can see the effect that they're having. You know, and, and, uh, and one thing for sure, um, they will benefit by that financially as the time goes by, but they'll also feel better about themselves because uh, they'll go home with a smile on their face as opposed to, um, you know, just thinking they've got a mundane job that doesn't have a, doesn't have a future and they've not, they've not actually achieved anything. But we are achieving things and my staff are achieving things, and they're better people for it. And you're absolutely right, and Nelson Mandela was right, that surround yourself by more intelligent people, clever skill sets, and that's what I've got around me, I'm thankful to say. Mm, And we've mentioned Nelson Mandela there as one name, but are there any examples of people out there who've maybe been an inspiration to you throughout your career, Steve, and maybe had an influence on that style of leadership that you've taken on, would you say? Hmm. Not that I can think offhand, to be honest with you, Scott. I'm sure that I'm sure there are. I mean, <sighs> Richard Branson used to be, but um, I'm not so sure that um, he would be a role model for me now. I've read his books, and um, I thought it's a gentleman, but I'm not so sure now. No, I understand. Of course, some opinions do uh, regularly change them in that sense. And one of the key things to remember as well um, for those people who may be listening to this and thinking that maybe there aren't any individual leadership figures that stick out in my mind who've been inspirations to me, that one of the greatest teachers is experience. And there's a great deal to be said for that. We've talked about the experience of trying new things, making mistakes and learning from them. And that can be just as valuable as anything, can't it? Without a doubt, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, to say, I make plenty of mistakes, but I'd like to think I make more, more good decisions than bad. Uh, and we do, you know, as, as a business now, we are moving forward very fast. So we're obviously, um, you know, that the branding is now recognized around the world and we are starting to, um, you know, we're getting inquiries from all the way around the world, which is incredible for a, a, a small company in a little town called Grimsby. Um, it's it's heartwarming to, to see people coming from literally every corner of the of the world looking for a product. So, yeah, excellent. It is, and it certainly seems as if the company was very much on an upward trajectory before the uh, the current COVID situation uh, did arise, and just to sort of 
pose that minor setback in a way. And if we think about the future as well, Steve, before we do wrap things up on the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision for yourself and the business in the next 12 months and also what you hope to achieve at Skippers, not just in navigating COVID-19, but also your ambitions for beyond the pandemic too. Well, we we are looking, um, obviously, with what's happened with, with Brexit, it's a, it's a game changer to a certain extent, but I honestly believe the opportunities that we now have, uh, we're able to no- negotiate our own trade deals. I, 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 you know, it's a very, very big world out there. And there's a lot of English-speaking people out there in, in other countries, non-EU, that, that love the English and the English products. And we're already seeing this interest already from a number of countries. And I believe the future for us, anyway, is extremely bright. Um, I'm looking forward to be able to do some trade shows uh, around the world uh, with our products because we do have something extremely unique and the healthiest treats around on on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. And I believe the future is actually going to be very, very good. Very, very good. I don't think I don't think the future is as frightening as people want to believe it's going to be. I think EU will still deal with us, but I think we'll get a lot of business from you know from America and Canada and China and Australia, etc. And uh, as well as the EU. So I, I, I'm very very excited for the future. I really am. So we're looking at expanding. Um, we've we've. Uh, got a, a few more ranges, new, new new treats that are going to come online in the next few weeks, stroke months. We've got new packaging and we've got new um, new website. And uh, Amazon is a huge market which we which we're exploring and it's growing month on month very quickly. Just it, I am excited. I really am excited for the future. I think the UK is going to boom in two or three years' time when we get through all this COVID and. Brexit's out the way, and with that, the trade deals are all done. I think I think we're going to fly. The country will start to fly, but we've got to go through some pain first, and that's about two or three years before it actually comes out of the end. But I think when we come out of the end, it will be sunshine. It's fantastic to hear that even all of this uncertainty surrounding COVID nineteen and surrounding Brexit, it's not hindering the ambitions of business and even though we are just about now out of time on today's program Steve what I think would be fantastic is in the next few months once we start to see things opening up again and uh, things launched within the business we could perhaps even have you back on the program to catch up on how Skippers is uh, getting on in that respect and just how some of those hopes sorry are being borne out as well um, but I have to say um, as far as today goes um, it's been a hugely um, insightful experience having you on the air with us and thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today it's been an absolute pleasure well it's been my pleasure too scott and i thank you very much for inviting me and and allowing me to explain a little bit about you know skippers and the leadership the way that i try to uh, work with my staff um as i say maybe i don't get everything right but we as a business are moving forward and that's the team effort so with that you know, I'm I, I'm excited the fact that I've got a team around me that I couldn't beat, and I'm I'm confident there's a good future. So I'd be more than welcome to come back. Uh, happy to come back again in the future.
That's fantastic to hear. And um, as far as leadership goes, of course, that team mentality is one of the most important things that you can take on board. Um, do take care, Steve, and do stay safe. Anybody listening as well, do heed that word because it does really make a difference in helping save lives. That was Steve Moore, the founder and managing director of Skipper's Pet Products. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland itself. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are 
now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, 
I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or 
public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. 
And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the 
scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition 
nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.